Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Stam Audio. Stam Audio creates zero compromise recording gear that is light on the wallet. Only the best components are used, and each one goes through a rigorous testing process with one thing in mind, getting the best sound possible. Go to stamaudio.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am A.L. Levy, and with me is Aria-nominated and internationally renowned producer and mixer, Mr. Forrester Savell. If you're not familiar with him, you should be. He's worked with bands like Carnival, Helmet, Dead Letter Circus, 12-Foot Ninja, Seeth, and many, many others. I know that this is a personal highlight for me to have you on, as it is for our audience. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you've been highly, highly requested to uh, to come on, so good to finally get a chance to talk to you. Cool. And uh, just first thing that I'm wondering, because you bring such a unique sound out of your productions that I'm just wondering why why do you do this what got you into this what drives you to uh, to do this audio thing I feel like you're coming from a different place than most of the producers that I know good question uh, I think it all sort of started in my teenage years when I was getting into music I think I started late like I never had an upbringing where music was in the house like my parents while they played a little bit of music it wasn't really a dominant force in my upbringing I didn't sort of start getting into musical instruments and stuff until really late in high school and um, definitely had more of an academic focus in school and the music things just sort of crept in and I started listening to you know to bands in the 90s I guess that just sucked me right in and the more I listen to their music the more I wanted to play music the more I explored I, I ended up getting a drum kit and a guitar and amp and was just sort of playing and writing shitty songs myself um at <laughs> home and just experimenting and then that experimenting at home like being a one-man band I sort of started working you know working on ways to record myself so I could you know play drums and then play a guitar part over it and I had a computer program people who are a little bit older might remember that these tracker programs that like the, were the very first kind of sequences on PC where they just played dodgy samples and you could pitch shift it and change the tempo. It's only like four tracks. So that all kind of pushed me into the world of, of audio and production. And that, um, yeah, that sort of led me to then going and finding a university course where I studied audio engineering. So did uh, your friends back in high school, did a lot of them play instruments yeah they did but they were all way better right way better than I was like I had, I was fumbling my way around all my instruments I mean I, no, I've never really truly thought of myself as a musician um, I've always approached the musician side of just having trying to have an understanding and how to like my focus in, in understanding instruments and how musicians work is just being able to communicate with them and be able to talk. Like I, I can pick up a guitar and play some chords and stuff, but I'd never, I'm never a, a player. And same with the drums. Like I did play drums and um, a couple of bands and yeah, had a goal at it, but it's not something that I ever sort of put high on my list of things to achieve. I was actually, I, I, from the very get-go, I was more in, inclined to be 
focused on the recording side of things and 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 song pre- and song creation um, in a respect. So even though I was funding my way around how you're know, playing these instruments, I still felt like I was structuring songs and getting somewhere with that. So that's sort of what pushed me into. I, mean, I didn't even know what a producer or an engineer really was until I started the university course. So I had no concept of of that job or career path. Um, and it wasn't until I met other people who were interested in the same concepts and, you know, the same ideas at university that I started to realise that that's what I was actually trying to be or trying to do. And I just refined it and honed it um, from that point um, at university. So in high school, it's interesting because I think lots of people use music as a way to socialise with each other and to overcome social awkwardness but since you were a late bloomer you probably didn't go through that phase and were forced to kind of develop your own kind of sound or approach to music just by virtue of doing it in isolation i guess yeah i I mean i think that if i do have a unique sound or whatever it might be that you're sort of you're picking up on it's also probably got a lot to do with the industry or the the, the the vibe of the industry over here in Australia, the isolation. I think, you know, we have our own quirkiness over here that, you know, and music moves in, in a little bit different cycles to the way it does overseas. So I think one of the things I sort of pick up on is that I, to have a career over here, you need to be quite flexible and I, I do work on a lot of different genres. So I perhaps don't hone in and focus on a particular sound or style so frequently as you know perhaps other um, producers engineers who are you know the top of their game in, in a particular site in a particular style so um, that influences I think what the way I approach what I do in a, in a big way as well that makes a lot of sense so when you got into college or university and first started learning what production actually was um, what was getting thrown at you? Was it like the technical side of it or were you suddenly working with bands? Like what was what was that like as compared to your self-study uh, leading up to that point? Well, the course was actually, essentially it was a theatre sound design course. So that was its, like the, the backbone of the course was basically we were the sound design students who were supporting the acting students and you know there were, there were lighting costumes set design all these different streams to support these theater productions that were going on but we also as the sound course we also had uh, access to working on films doing jazz concerts and doing studio recordings and had all these other all the other facets of audio we sort of touched on and we could sort of choose which way we wanted to go and what what subjects we wanted to focus on so i obviously focused on the music so day to day i'd be dealing with a lot of the musicians in the other streams you know the the, even though they might be actors or um you know theater students so they're obviously so there's good singers there so we'd get good singers into the studio and record them and so it was a, it was a bit of both so there was, there was a highly technical aspect to it um where I learned I mean I, I knew nothing when I went into that course and I came out of it 
still kind of knowing nothing, but at least I knew what the different bits of equipment and the technology was. And But then I also had a great um, introduction to the writing and to the performance and to the, the artistic side of it, I guess, as well, through those interactions with those those other players and, and um, actors and students in the course. So it was a really, and it, not only that, it was also a really great networking environment. So, I mean, this there's still people today who I deal with and, and work with who I met in that um, in that environment. You, you said earlier that you're academically minded or that you were academically minded up until you discovered music. Um, did that academic, uh, I guess, focus help you? In recording school, I think so. Yeah, with the techn with the technical side of things, definitely. Yeah, I think I think I I, I still I sort of I, I struggle to see where I sit on that um, you know, on that spectrum. I guess from you know the the, leaning, the either leaning towards the technical really technical side, the engineering side, or the other side of the real creative side, and I kind of feel like I split down the middle as best as I can. But I definitely. I feel like I started in the technical side for sure. Like that was a lot more comfortable to me because I hadn't begun as a musician. I hadn't begun necessarily as you know creating music with other players and stuff. So it was all sort of building it up from this academic background. So I was definitely more confident with the engineering side of things. And I think one of the first steps I took out of uni when I started in the workforce over here in Australia as I um, was doing a lot of live sound mixing and I think a, a, compared to the studio and compared to sitting in a room with a bunch of musicians writing songs the live the live work is a lot more technical minded you've you know, got to be on top of all the different signal chains and feedback and all that sort of stuff so that 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 was my basis for the first couple of years so yeah it was definitely I think an assistance to have the academic sort of brain working on those sort of problems and it was it wasn't until I became comfortable in the studio that I really started to explore the whole creative side of production well what's interesting this is to me is that a lot of the times you hear producers who love the artistic types of soundscapes that I hear in your work but they don't sound as technically masterful it sounds to me like you do an incredible job of blending both the correct way to do things with a very artistic way of doing things i think that that's the uniqueness that people latch on to that normally you don't hear such lush textural work and such a variety of sounds sound that good you normally hear people trying to make that sound good. So, did you enjoy the uh, the live work, or do you just feel like it was a good uh, good training? Uh, I definitely wanted to steer away from it. I, to be honest, I just felt it was really punishing on my ears. The um, just the sheer volume of doing live work day in day out was very taxing um, on my hearing. So I knew that that was going to cause problems if I kept doing that. So it was a definite focus of mine to up the ante on the studio side of things versus the live work. And uh, one of the ways I did that was whenever I was working, mixing a live band, if there was a good band that I came across, whether they were, you know, like 
yes, like a support band or whoever it might have been on the bill, I would go up to them after the show and say, hey, do you guys want to go into the studio and do a song, you know? Sort of use it as a real, uh, it's a real good networking forum for, yeah, for approaching new artists and, and hearing new artists as well. So I think it was definitely a, a strong focus of mine when I first, in those first couple of years when I was doing a lot of live mixing was just to get out and see as much music as I could so I could network. How often would they take you up on it when you approach them after a gig? Um, I've got a few gigs out of it like you, you kind of got to be smart about how you approach it I was, so I was lucky enough to get an assisting job uh in Melbourne at one of the biggest studios just that was purely through luck because I was mixing a gig and the support band were really good and I went up to the uh one of the guys in the band and said you know do you guys want to record and I'd love to record you guys and he said, oh, look, it's not going to happen because I'm actually an assistant at this particular studio. <laughs> so I've already got my foot in the door. And I was like, oh, I was like, what studio? He told me what the studio was. I said, oh, I've actually already applied for a job there. And he was, he was impressed by whatever I was saying. So he went and spoke to the studio manager and actually got me a gig there. So that was kind of the foot in the door to working in this great studio. And that opened up a lot of possibilities because, as you well know, when you work at a studio, there's downtime and you're able to entice bands in on cheaper rates. And, I mean, to be honest, I I worked for free a lot in those sort of early years just because you just want to get, you know, experience and you just want to get your name out there. So, you know, the, the band would come in on a discounted rate, pay the studio, but you'd be working all night through the night for free just so you get a great product and a great result. That attitude, I think, really formulated my my attitude to to recording and how I approach things is was just about getting the best result no matter how hard or how long or how late you needed to work. A lot of our listeners ask, you know, they submit questions of, how do I get bands? You know, how do I get clients? How do I get that whole thing started? And one of the things that we tell them more often than not is go to shows and walk up to the bands afterwards. And they don't, sometimes they don't believe us that it's that simple, that that's what you have to do because they feel awkward doing it. How did you overcome that awkwardness of just walking up to them? Um, I think usually because I was involved in this in the scene i guess like i was an active live mixer i was comfortable at the venues that that facilitated um me approaching bands and that but in the end i mean it's just they're just guys and girls like like you know like the listeners like people like me i just just go up and go hey man i really like your guitar part in that song or i really liked your you know the drum kit's really cool what what is it you know just 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 inane questions like that will get you in a conversation and then you know you can obviously just steer it to a point where well this is what i do and you guys are great and i really love your music and how about we have a chat about just doing a song and i think yeah, you just alcohol helps. <laughs> I think when you're in those, when you when you're younger, you know, you get a cup of confidence sure with you. Um, so I mean, everyone's approachable. Like it's obviously you, it's going to be harder to get your foot in the door with more established bands who have um, you know already got their guys that they're working with and 
and yeah they've got a lot of fans it, it gets difficult to get one-on-one with with um, the bigger bands but th- you, you don't start there you know you start with the the small local bands and that's you know you do if you do a great job on one of those and they'll tell their friends and you'll get another gig and then do a good job on that and you'll get another gig that, that was the approach that i took it was just about getting you know like i look back at my show reel that i used to have you know it was you could just see it getting better and better with each track that I, each band that I worked on. So in, in terms of yeah, going out and, and meeting bands and networking, you sort of start at your, at your local scene and just got to find music that really excites you and, and interests you and just, yeah, just basically find find the guys, you know, before the show or after the show, after they've packed up and get in there and have a conversation with them just do it yeah just do it that's it i mean this job really is about networking especially in your early part of your career i mean i I feel like where i'm at now where i've got a bit of a name and a bit of a profile that i don't need to do the networking as much because work comes to me but definitely in those early years i was you know i was anxiously getting out there to to try and you know, talk to people and, you know, r- rattle up some work. That was high on my agenda when I was starting out. Well, you know, sometimes networking has a a dirty connotation to it or some people tend to feel like you shouldn't have to do that, but I think it's just as important as your musical skills. I think you absolutely have to network and you absolutely have to work on your social skills in order to make this a career. It's almost like your musical skills are assumed. It's assumed that you're going to be good at that, at the musical side of it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, even if you're not, you, you know, it's it's all just a learning experience and you're going you're gonna to improve as you as you work with each band and learn different things of different musicians. I mean, I look back at the, my understanding of things like pitch, you know, and what I understood was in tune and out of tune 15 years ago is vastly different to what I understand is in tune and out of tune <laughs> these days, you know. So, and things like that, you just learn and you just learn these little tricks of different musicians. Everyone's got a different concept and has a different upbringing in terms of how they process music and the way they work and if you just take a little bit of knowledge from each person you meet it just it just builds up your experience i think yeah like i think finding good musicians and finding music that really excites you and you know brings out a passion inside of you is really important in those in that sort of starting stage as well there's nothing there's nothing worse than working on a project you don't have your heart in so you do have to also work to sort of try and find music that excites you you know that music that's that's going to make you passionate about working on it oh what kind of music made you passionate enough to stick it through the hard times um i i think i was just excited about music in general i mean i think you've got to be that especially over here in australia like it's not the industry is not huge um it's definitely a struggle to have a career in this in this industry but i think just my drive to just do what i do made me excited about lots of music and it was only i guess it was only 
there's only a handful of bands I can say that I was not excited about working with and often you don't sort of realise that until you sort of met the personalities in the band and that sort of thing that you start to, you know, realise that it wasn't really the, the thing you thought it was. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, just, I just love, you know, I can find something I love about most bits of music and I sort of going back to what I said uh, earlier about working on different genres and different styles, I think that was exciting to me to to work on not just one particular sound and one particular style. I had access or had needed to f- have access to a whole broad range of genres because that was the only way you could survive over here, just working with different styles of music. So, um, I mean, I, yeah, I was, I'm just, I, I was just, I still am super passionate about what I do and any kind of access that I had into a studio to use microphones and use different bits of gear and then, you know, talk to the bands about how they, you know, like I'm eternally fascinated about how bands write their songs. Like how is it one person sitting in, you know, with an acoustic guitar writing a song or is it one person sitting in front of a computer programming drums or is it the whole band like getting stoned and jamming in a in a garage or yeah just that that sort of stuff really interests me so i would always be digging into how that works with different bands too what about it interests you well just the creative process like how do people come up with music you know how is that how do how do they get inspired and and does it you know like obviously we're all a product of our influences and so what music are they influenced by and how did that how did they come up with that that guitar riff or how did you know how did they how did how did the four or five different people mesh their parts together and you know did they did they write you know, all the parts, did one person write all the parts or, you know, and, and how did it all get planned to be what it was? And, and in, in the case of when it's really good music, it's like, how did, how did you, how did you work out these parts to fit together? You know, it's a, it, that fascinate, I don't know, that just fascinates me, those sort of questions. So yeah, that, that, just exploring the, the ways in which music is sort of built and created by different brains um, is probably that's probably the thing that keeps me going. And every day when I work on a new piece of music, I'm constantly sort of, it's like the behind the scenes thing. You know, we see these documentaries about <laughs> behind the scenes in the studio and that sort of stuff. I love that stuff. So do you kind of see yourself as a facilitator of those great moments? I guess so. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, like understanding the role of a producer took a while for me. You know, like it, it was that, I remember having conversations at, at college, at university about, you know, when the, the the term producer first got told to me, I was like, producer, what, what, what is that? Like, what does that even mean? And then, you know, realising that there's a whole variety of roles that a producer can take and there is no sort of one role for a producer. And I sort of slowly worked out what it was that I was doing as a producer. And that, that change, I guess, to actually realise that what I was doing could be called producer was a you know like a light bulb moment for me as well that I could actually call myself a producer because I was in a room with musicians throwing out ideas you know facilitating like you said their creation of their song and that you know I definitely I definitely started in more of an engineering role no doubt um, in the in the beginning, but it wasn't until I started realizing with confidence that I could express ideas to these musicians, and they would 
respectfully listen to it and give me feedback and we would work on something together that I realized that that's yeah, that was a that was the role of a producer and that's what I was actually doing so I mean I, the, the role changes with, with different artists so you're ex- you're expected to do different things with different artists and a lot of cases you are doing less because um, the bands have got such a strong creative drive they know how the studio operates they know what they want from the studio so you're just basically s- taking a step back just letting them do their thing and helping them assisting them where they need to go some bands need you know need you to write the parts for them in in some instances you know they need a, like a helping hand every step of the way so that that does vary so as much definitely a facilitator yeah and do you feel like it's something that you instinctually figure out each with each project or is it something that's decided upon up front like we need a helping hand we kind of expect you to finish these songs off for us or is it just kind of something that's felt out? It's, I think it's just something you just work out when you're when you're in the room with the the people. I mean, it's, sometimes it's sort of mentioned in a sort of a semi-contractual conversation to begin with, but you definitely just. I mean, you're all just working towards the same result, which is making great music together. So you just work out where you know where the band needs assistance and sort of help help them in that and pu- push in that direction, sort of thing. But yeah, like I. I I don't think it's ever actively, you know, this is your role, you need to stick to this and we, you know, we need, this is all we need from you. It's just, I'll, I'll definitely say what I think whenever and that's the, that's where I've come to and at this point in my career is that I'm happy to, you know, to, to say what my thoughts are on anyone's music that I'm working with and whether they take that those suggestions or not I'm not going to force any idea on anyone but I'll definitely say my mind in in terms of trying to make the project or trying to make the music better in my mind so do you find that people are more uh, receptive to your ideas on their music now than earlier in your career I think I'd say definitely yes but I think it's also just more about my confidence in terms of understand music a lot better now have smarter ideas have a more acute sense of what needs to be done to improve you know the the performance or the end result so it's maybe where in the past i would would have held back and not said anything because i wasn't confident i wasn't sure about what the the best step forward was in the early days these days i think i've got a much better idea and a bit a clearer picture of what um what to, to do to get a good result so it's um it's probably more that than necessarily the people's respect for me but that definitely that plays into it for sure i think with the body of work that i've done you know it's it's much easier these days to throw your idea and in the mix and have it uh listened and and taken on board definitely can't hurt so onto a slightly more technical track I was wondering if you could share some insight or techniques or preferences that you have when tracking drums. Sure. I mean, for instance, do you have a uh, a drum room you prefer? Um, yeah, I do. I mean, we, we, it's kind of limited here in Australia. Studios are closing down left, right and centre. Uh, the one uh, studio down in Melbourne called Sing Sing, um, which is where I recorded the tune track 
um, the Progressive Foundry Library mm-hmm. is a favourite of mine. It's a great uh, drum sound there. I mean, they've got a, a classic collection of microphones and some great great gear there. So that's a it's a it's a good space to record in. Um, there's a few other uh, nice studios dotted around Australia as well. There was one up in Brisbane, which I really loved, which has closed down now. And the studio over in Perth, where we did Carnival Sound Awake, great drum sound from that studio. There's two studios actually over there that were really good. Um, and there's a studio in New Zealand called Roundhead, which I've just done some drum tracking in, which I really like the sound of that room. And of course, the one that Nolly always uses which I had a chance to record in with the Good Tiger record uh, earlier this year in Middle Farm. is really good as well. So He he told me about it. Yeah. I, it's just, I, the funny thing is, is when you, I, I think of all these studios, they're all very similar in size. They're, they're not massive. They're actually, you know, all of, uh, I don't know what the exact sizing was, maybe 20 metres by 15 metres or something like that. They're all... Yeah, very similar in size, and uh, they, yeah, I think all the that the tone I get from room sounds and those sort of size rooms is what I really like, and, and I know Noel is expressed; he loves the sound of that room as well. So, yeah, I think there's a, I think there's probably like a, a perfect range for a great drum room, um, which exists in this particular sizing. So. Yeah, that's um, that's what I I definitely keep that in mind when I'm trying to work with a band and trying to work out what the best location is to do drums. I'll definitely consider that um, as much as I can. I mean, I, in in Australia, I'm definitely way more flexible when it comes to drum recordings. I mean, I do a lot of guerrilla recordings, you know, where we're just going into a house or yeah. you know into a, a storage unit or something like that and recording in those sort of environments. So. Um, it's not always in this a pristine studio, so need to sort of be flexible um, in t- in that respect. So, but I do yeah weigh up all those sort of options. I mean, we, the last Dead Letter Circus record, we recorded the drums in the studio, but we recorded them in the kitchen, which is sort of upstairs. It wasn't actually in the in the recording space, just because we'd re- this particular studio would use the studio for all their other recordings and. I felt like I wanted to change the drum sound and I just always, the, the kitchen just had this really awesome reverberant live sound and we ended up putting, bringing all these baffles and putting the drum kit um, up there and doing crazy mics down hallways and that sort of stuff and um, I think it came out really good. You know, we, it was a bit of a nightmare in terms of bringing all the equipment up there but um yeah it was a great result just something really different had a different flavor that um you know we'd never none of us had never heard before come out of that studio so it was exciting to do those sort of different things it's it's funny i've, I've heard some kitchens with damn good drum sounds yeah <laughs> i walk into a room oh yeah i walk into any, any kind of room and go yeah i do it i actually do it all the time my friends are actually looking for a rental and went out with them the other day and we're like man this this lounge would make a rad drum room. <laughs> it's funny, man, what you can get away with drum room-wise. Sometimes I've even had the experience where very highly regarded drum rooms don't quite live up to the hype, and sometimes the gorilla recording versions sound better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as 100% happens... Yeah, there's, there's there's plenty of studios, I think, where they've been designed with all this great intention and all this great engineering and math, and it's 
just doesn't doesn't work out and there's a particular studio here in australia that's got that reputation you know and so it's just one of those things it's, it's like i think there's so much randomness that goes on when you're talking about reflective surfaces and you know dimensions of rooms and that sort of stuff that there's it's it's such a difficult thing to articulate especially even if you've got a degree in you know acoustic engineering it's still a tricky thing so yeah I'm, I'm i'm always interested to hear how a drum room sounds you know there's actually a new studio yeah where i am living at the moment which i'm keen to go and check out i've got a, a, a friend of mine we're gonna go and check it out next week i think and take a take a snare drum or take a, a drum kit down there and have a listen see whether it's suitable so i'm um, yeah not definitely not restricted to just using studios it's always yeah always looking at all the options and what might sound good and uh do you use a tech or do you tune all your own drums um i've yeah i always tune my own drums i realized early on that that was a skill that i needed to learn um so i've i've always been hands-on in terms of tuning drums yeah from yeah a decade ago so I know, you know, it's funny, like, you joke about it all the time with, with different guys about, you know, the amount of drummers that are out there that play drums but don't know how to tune their drum kits. Oh, my you God. Know. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. But, um, no, Nolly was showing me his tuning method, which I've kind of, yeah, cherry-picked a few ideas from, which is quite quite consistent. I like the way that he, he does his drum tuning. So I've always sort of, while mine's been semi-technical, it's always just been like a how does it sound, you know, how, how, does, how does it sound by ear? and under the microphone um and whereas his is kind of very mathematical and systematic so um yeah sort of trying to implement that in a, in a fashion into my technique as well uh, has he gone through has has it has he gone over that before with you guys like he's i've i've seen him do it before um on video and it definitely it definitely is like you said very consistent yeah so yeah i just <clears throat> yeah I've, it's just something that i i've just experimented with every drum session that i've done so i've just always been you know one of the banes of drum recordings is snare drums going out of tune you know it, just depending on the type of drum you've got and depending on the player you've got um you know if you need to do it need, need to do a million takes on a you know, on a, on a song, then the, the snare obviously starts to drift a lot, and I learned that mm-hmm. the hard way. <laughs> a particular recording, uh, <laughs> you know, didn't until I sat back and doing the mix, and was like, man, the snare sounds really different at the end of the song. What's going on there? And, and yeah, I had to use samples to correct that. But um, from that point on, I was like, okay, I've got to really fine tune. You know, I sort of hone in on the on the snare tuning as we're doing the performance. So, you know, one of the, it's one of those things where almost every second take i'll get the drummer at the start of the, yeah, to to hit the snare drum and compare it to the first track that we've recorded and make sure the tuning's lining up it's a tedious process but it's the way to get the snare sounding great throughout the song that's exactly what i do um i actually don't let the drummers touch the lugs though you do it do you uh well me or a drum tech i just uh I just don't trust drummers to tune the drums. Right. I have just seen too many disasters. <laughs> sure, yeah. I find, as, as like, for, say, for the snare drum, for example, um, it's for me, it's usually always the lug where the rim shot's occurring. And mm-hmm. if you just get them to just tune that little lug up and then, you know, solo the, the snare mic and play the, the first track that you've, the first take that you've got and then, you know, flick 
input monitoring back and forth between what they're playing and what's coming off the the recording and you can usually get it pretty close it it's it's not until you're doing hundreds of takes you know a lot of takes that the snare head starts to deform and it gets a little bit trickier to to keep in tune but through good choices of snare heads and good preparation essentially um it's the foundation of you know keeping your drums in tune for the bulk of the song i think the more I the more I learned as I was recording is that you know that, that this pre-production comes such an important part of of what I do because having a drummer who knows what they're playing and isn't changing and playing random things through a drum performance because I don't understand the song yet um, you know having them completely prepared saves so much pain and suffering when it comes to getting a good drum sound in the actual recording because yeah they're not doing lots and lots of takes because you know, they don't they don't know what the part is or the performance how the performance needs to go so something that's occurring more and more these days is actually doing the drum recording last I was about to ask you about that yeah um, so yeah d- d- doing doing the whole recording to superior drummer um, which has been fine-tuned and programmed and, and often changed as the you know the rest of the music goes down as the guitar guitar parts and everything come you know get worked out we can change drum fills and modify it right to the very end but at, during that process the drum is sort of really learning and practicing to those program parts and then you go through and do the recording at the end and it's a much more efficient process so that and i feel like you can also tune the drums to the music that you've recorded and get the drums working you know as best to the music that's going to be there as opposed to the reverse where you're recording the drums first and kind of having a bit of a guess as to the tones of everything yeah you you sort of you, you there's two ways of looking at it i can't I, I, the thing is I'm, I'm completely split down the middle is which way's um the best way to go because there's something really i think find really cool about flying by the seat of your pants and just going for a drum sound and then going okay we've got to match everything else to that drum sound or vice versa going you know recording all the guitars bass and vocals and then putting the drums down at the end and matching the drum sound to the music i haven't yet settled on which way i prefer yet i think i'm i'm split as well i think it really depends a lot on who it is you're working with and what their what their level of preparation is or what type of band they are because there's I feel like there's some bands that the song is the song is the song. Yeah. And it's not going to change. And they're just tight and the songs aren't changing. And maybe sometimes in those cases, I prefer to do the drums first because they've all been practicing to these parts that are set in stone. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that's that, that touches on something that I hold to when I'm doing any production is it's you have to be adaptive to the band and the, and every project is different so the processes that worked with one band and you got you know like you've learned something amazing on this one particular project and you're like great I'm going to try and use this on this next project but you realize it's just a completely different beast so you need to need to be flexible with your ideas and and the processes and, and in my situation with the different genres and styles that I work on it's definitely yeah there's definitely needs to be you know different different approaches to different bands yeah, don't don't be like that guitar player who uh just got a whammy pedal for the first time and suddenly 
every new party writes as a whammy bar. I mean, whammy pedal part in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I remember thinking, when, hearing your work, that the first picture I was going to see of you was going to be you with like 300 pedals. And then uh, the first picture I saw of you was you tracking some dude with the Nax effects. <laughs> and I thought that was really cool because it just goes to show that you can, that these days you can't, you can't call it anymore by what it sounds like. You, the gear almost doesn't matter at this point because it's gotten so good. You need to just actually see for yourself what the person was using. Now, how do you feel about analog versus digital? Are you the type that just use? It's all just tools, or do you have a a definite opinion? No, that's that's spot on. They're all just different tools. I, mean, I think ten years ago, maybe a little bit more, there was reason for people to have an argument about digital versus analog. But these days, it's like it just no one's going to listen to a recording and go, "Oh, look, that was done on." this or that and it sounds better for this reason you know like i i've done not so much recently but yeah a couple of years back i was doing recordings to 24 inch tape and i was just going why, why are we doing this like it doesn't you know it doesn't <laughs> it doesn't sound any better than you know than just doing it straight into the door and it's kind of time consuming and expensive so you know this is there's there's good analog gear out there there's you know there's reasons to use analog gear and there's reasons to use digital <clears throat> and it's just it, to be honest though the again coming back to this whole like isolated in australia thing is that you're you're often just restricted by the equipment you can get access to so you've got a band in a particular city and they've got a particular amount of gear and you go into the studio and the studio's got a particular amount of gear so you just use what you've got just make it work yeah and just make it work and i mean again like the, the being passionate about what you do uh, definitely in the early days i was just super psyched to be trying to be working in different studios for one and then to be using all this different gear and when it was a piece of equipment that i hadn't used before i was always quizzing the in-house engineer and going what does this do like what do you use this for can we use this and i always try and use new bits of gear that i'd never experienced before just because it adds to your palette and, you know adds to your, your knowledge about the tools that you can apply to make you know to make the music industry interesting so that sort of i found myself realizing that when you go into these different environments you know going touching back on the doing the drums in different place different rooms different studios is that you actually find that you start defining the sound of a record or a recording by these strange and unique environments that you find yourself in so i kind of struggle a bit when I go back to the same studio over and over again because I start thinking in the back of my head you, you, you're going to start sounding the same everything's going to start sounding the same and I, I can understand that some people think that that's a great thing but for me it sort of gets a little bit tired I think and I, I, I'm constantly reminded yeah when I record in unique environments that by being restricted by, you know, we've only got this one guitar amp or we've only got this one microphone or whatever it may be, that that actually will give the record a unique sound that hasn't happened before. So I kind of look for those sort of things when I'm recording. So 
yeah, in terms of like finding analog or digital, it doesn't really matter as long as it's bringing something a little bit quirky and unique to a recording. I have no problem using it either or. Well, on the topic of feeling like maybe by using the same place, you're kind of repeating yourself. Do you do you travel beyond Australia much? To work? I have, yeah, there's been a couple of times. I obviously just recently went over to the UK to work with Good Tiger uh, on their new record. And I've, I've done a record over in France with a uh, UK band and done a little bit in New Zealand as well. So I definitely do the travelling thing. And yeah, like I, I, I've actually done a bunch of work in, um, in LA as well. I lived in LA for about six months, um, about 10 years ago or more now. Um, and worked in a whole bunch of really cool studios over there. What did you think of living in L.A.? Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. Um, in terms of the lifestyle, I, I mean, I was just waking up in the morning, driving straight to the studio and then going home late at night. So I didn't, <laughs> you know, I, didn't I, I was just, I was pretty focused in my time that I was there. But, um, yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't, didn't dislike it, so... I feel like now I'm a little bit older. I've obviously, you know, got family connections here and, and that sort of thing that I, I think my place of, you know, where I want to live is probably going to be Australia, but definitely don't mind travelling to other parts of the world to record. It's definitely exciting to go into different new studios. And I think all the, the studios elsewhere in the world are probably a little bit more exciting than the ones here in Australia. They're definitely, um, there's more of them and they're usually a little bit bigger and, yeah. It's definitely something that I do enjoy doing. It's funny because I, I'm friends with so many producers here in the States and going to Australia to record is like the promised land almost. We all have this thing about going to Australia. <laughs> yeah, actually, the, the studio that's just down the road that I have been at for the last uh, year, um, Will, I met Will Partney. Um, a couple of months back and yeah Great dude he, yeah he's always over here doing plenty of recordings so yeah i mean australia's got a lot of really good bands on offer and um yeah there are, there are good studios here to record in so we're definitely not not short of options but yeah it's always exciting to get overseas and try something new it just puts you in a different sort of headspace that you just can't you just can't recreate it or fabricate it even if you're using the same you know the same rig same types of microphones same types of plugins or whatever um as you would back home there's just some sort of a vibe that is just different and i feel like it will lead to different types of decisions yeah and it's also challenging as well like you know early on i realized that there's something to be said for working in the same space day in, day out, is you become very comfortable and confident in the sounds that you're pulling and the, what you're hearing and and you can make fast decisions on things as opposed to moving around different studios it's it's a little bit trickier you know you've got to you've got to deal with different monitoring and and the way the different control rooms sound and that sort of thing and that enhances the the difficulty i guess in in doing what you're used to doing but at the same time I, that that challenge i actually really enjoy that challenge and again i feel like it, it contributes to that thing that i'm always trying to find of making a record sound unique and 
and you know why does why why does this record what does this record do that's special and all those little variations you know between studios and that can enhance that the end result i think in terms of it just sounding like a a capture of a band in a certain place in certain time so i yeah i, I loved going to different studios yeah, when I was starting out, I think these days I'm probably working from my home studio a lot more um, than I am going out. And just feel like I'm doing a lot more mixing these days. But um, yeah, I, I definitely don't have a single studio that I always go to. That I always take a band to. It's always I'm always going somewhere different for recording. So, do you think that this uh, that your search for a unique identity or that unique thing that you think every records should do is that a conscious thing you're looking for or is it something that you subconsciously do but you're aware of it now um i think it's a conscious thing i think i just i feel like i don't want to be stuck doing the same thing over and over again and as much as a a lot of my work comes to me because i've done some bands that sound a certain way in the past I really want every band to be their own unique thing. And you think of all the classic records that you'll know and love, every record sounds different. You know, they, generally every band that's been, you know, successful and, and that has, has, you know, their music's touched people in a way that um, is, is, you know, unique to them. I think it's, it's about the recording sounding different and having its own flavour. So... That's definitely something in my mind that every band should have their own flavour, which is you know can be difficult to do, but depending on the style. But and there's definitely you know there's definitely sounds that bands aspire to, which you're trying to mimic or you know replicate, which you have to take on board as well. But it's definitely a conscious thing for me to try and make every record I do not sound like any other record I've done. Um, in, in, it could be in subtle ways, you know. It's not. It's not. I need to make it completely different, but it just needs to be. Just. I, I, I like the idea of people listening to a, 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 you know, a bunch of bands that I've done and not knowing that it's the same guy, kind of behind the desk. That's definitely a goal of mine. Now, what happens when you have trouble finding that with an artist? Does I mean, does that ever happen? I guess like. The equivalent of writer's block, but I guess uh, it's not really writer's block. It's more like identity block, or I, I don't even know what you would call it. But do you ever have trouble finding what that that unique voice is or that unique point of view is? Um, it, it can be a little bit murky at the start of a recording, but I, usually by the time you've kind of got to the final stages, it's there's there's some, there's something there's one thing that I've latched onto that'll be the thing that I want to bring forward and make the yeah not necessarily the focus but that'll that'll be the thing that'll um identify this band and make them unique you know it's it's like, it's like those things like it's like the you know like the edges guitar sound or you know Tom York's vocal style or you know, just whatever band you're talking about that you can easily go, you know that band that's got that thing? And it usually by the, you know, three quarters of the way through the recording, I've worked out what that's going to be. Um, so it's it can be a little bit, yeah, a little bit vague at the start of recording what that's actually, you know, whether it's a guitar sound or whether it's a, a vocal 
style or a yeah you know, a, a drum sound or a reverb or it could be anything but yeah but it's not something that's because every every person is unique every individual in in a in a band or every performer's got their own idiosyncrasies it's just one of those things that you can kind of pick up on and push to the fore as you're working yep well i have some questions here from our audience if you don't mind i'd like to ask you some of them sure all right Anthony DiGiacomo is wondering if you could please explain the sound awake bass tone in excruciating detail, and he left lots of hearts and smiley faces. <laughs> I get asked this one quite a lot, actually. I'm sure you do. Yeah. Um, well, it sounds monstrous. Well, first, you need a guy like John Stockman to be playing the bass. That's probably the most fundamental thing. Yeah. Um, though. Those space sounds were generally made up of his six-string Warwicks. So he had two of them. He had a Corvette and I think it might have been a Thumb. Uh, I think, don't quote me on that one, but he uh, had those two different bases. So that, that album is basically flicking between those two different bases and there was, I think there might have been a Fender five-string jazz in there as uh, might have been a p bass actually we had i think three amplifiers running all the time into three cabs so they were just doing different things so we had a svt2 power amp and we had i think the preamp stage and that was busted so i think we were using maybe an ashdown preamp and then we also had an ashdown another Ashdown amp going into an Ashdown, I think it's a, a 6x10 or an 8x10 cab, 6x10 I think it is. And um, the, sorry, the Ampeg was going into an Ampeg fridge. And then we had an Aguila um, head and cab as well. So we sort of just blended different combinations of those three cabs for the different songs. So I, the way I approach it is you kind of can't get what I see is like a full band with bass sound from one amp. So I've always got a fat, thick, clean bass tone. Usually, I think that's probably usually coming from the uh, Ampeg or the Aguila. And then you have a sort of like a honky kind of really throaty mid-range sound, which is indicative of the, the Warwick sort of bass sound. Um, so that was usually going through the Ashdown head and box and then we would always add a distortion of some kind and we had a bunch of different pedals to play with i couldn't actually remember what they are i think there was there was a purple xx xxl i think it might have been um one of those really bad sounding bass drive boss the yellow boss pedals was actually in there <laughs> a little bit um, that's the good, the good thing about that pedal is it's got a wet dry blend, so you just use a little bit of it for the top end fizz. And I, I just I can't really recall what the other distortion we might have had in there, but we'd always just find a blend between those three textures for the bass. And then in mixing, so we get a DI as well, clean completely clean DI. And in mixing, I would always add in a plug in distortion as well. So. From memory, I think in Sound Awake, because I have recently gone over those files because I know John's just released the um, Alpha Omega pedal with um, Dark Glass, and I had to give them a bunch of the sounds for that. So 
I think we recorded two two mic, you know, two two amps, and a DI, and the DI always had a plug-in distortion on it. So the plug-in distortion was either amplitude, which I used quite a lot. I love that plugin for just different distortion textures. Um, and it might have been the Pro Tools 11 guitar amp simulator. It was just sort of bouncing between those two ones for different songs, depending on what the, the song needed. So that's pretty much the rundown. In terms of microphones, I'm 100% there would always be a 57 on each of the cabs and there would always be a condenser so whether it was a 414 or um in that particular studio um there were two different studios so again all my my facts are a little bit vague at this stage (laughs) it was quite a while ago but in in the in the first studio yeah 414s and probably like a peluso might have been one of the c12 copies or something like that and then um in the big in the the other studio we did where we did Goliath, uh, that would have been most likely a forty seven U forty seven or a forty nine or something like that on the on the bass and as well as the fifty seven. But you always use a, always basically always use a fifty seven and some kind of condenser microphone and get a blend. Um, yeah, the, the the grit and the attitude from the fifty seven and then the the fatness sort of blended in from the condenser microphone. So yeah, there would have been yeah six at least six microphones on those three cabs and and possibly a room mic as well. There's definitely a room mic on the, the Goliath song because the drums and the bass were done at the same time. So um, I think a lot of the drum mics are actually picking up the room mic. Yeah, so that's right. When I soloed the – recently when I soloed the, the bass channel for Goliath, uh, the snare drums cracking through it, like I said, the actual bass channel is actually like a room mic for the snare drum so just a interesting little tidbit yeah that's sounds like uh quite the uh the bass setup that and he actually expanded on this question but i i feel like you already answered this which is was it a split tone in the mix me you know did you split it into subs and highs or anything like that no I don't, no it's not i don't I, it's not a split tone in terms of the eq being split it's just a split in terms of the different textures so yeah yeah like there's like there's, there's the fat clean texture there's the throaty mid-range texture and there's the fizzy distortion mm-hmm. texture and you just find different combinations of that i mean it's not, and again it wasn't the same every time like we we changed things around you know we, we did use swap the cabs between the different amps for different songs and just got a different definitely went for a different vibe on the bass for every song and i mean that's that's probably something that's worth mentioning you know like i when i'm doing a full album it it, it will depend on time and budget but it's um I, i do like approaching each song as its own beast and having the time to create a sound and a texture for each song that's perhaps a little bit individual so the whole album doesn't always sound the same which i think sound awake's a great example of that we had had enough time to try different sounds for each song and and each song has a different different bass tone on it yeah it still sounds like a cohesive record yeah i think that's to do with the the players as well you know and that maybe maybe using the same bass guitar and using the same a similar drum kit i mean i think it's a different snare drum in every song on that on that record you know we just 
that's something I'll always do as well get as many snare drums as I can on a recording and get the drummer to play through a chorus a verse and a chorus with each snare drum and just you know sit back with a band and go which one complements the song the best and you know rather than sometimes it's the same snare just because you've got a bunch of shitty snares and you got one that's way better than the rest of them and you'll end up using that for all the songs <laughs> that does happen but yeah just just trying to use the tools that are available and and you know go through all the options before you settle on something so um jimmy glass is asking how do you keep such a massive mix when working with a large amount of tracks like the occupied song Wonderland. I guess what he meant to ask was, how do you keep such a massive mix organized when working with a large amount of tracks with things like the Occupants song Wonderland? He may mean, how do you keep it massive? Because there's definitely a a thing that happens with the, the more tracks you add, the more layers that you add, the smaller it gets. Um, mm-hmm. that's definitely a thing I can I can um, acknowledge that happens when you're mixing when you've just got too many parts and too many layers it gets really hard to make it all fit together in a in a cohesive way um, and that, that that was probably something that I really struggled with because I, I love like the layering and the, the ambiences and the textures and I love the detail and I guess that's sort of something I've really wanted to delve into from the early days and I but at the same time I find that the more and more you strip things back and get back to just three instruments going at once the easy it's way easier to to make a great sounding mix out of so I mean I think you do I have what I call when I'm doing my own productions and you know working with a band and we are in the studio I've got no fear to throw down every idea and record all these parts you know that I know that are never actually going to make the final mix but just to have them there if there's something that's really cool um you know like just get it down you know if, if we're if we're under a you know a time frame just just get it all out <clears throat> put it on this on the session and then when i go to the mixing stage i'll sort of sift through it uh in and sort of work out which parts are working and end up doing what i call it as a mute party and basically go through and mute things that um don't make the cut so i think being aware that having too much stuff in a mix is going to, you know, clutter and detract from the end result. So being, you know, being brutal, I think, in terms of what you're keeping is a, is a great way of making your mix huge. In terms of, like, the file keeping or, I guess, like, keeping things contained and, and easy to, to, to understand in the mixing concept... I've just got a system. I think we've probably all, whoever, if you've been doing this for a while, you've probably got your own way of setting up a session. But I always, you know, in terms of a Pro Tools session, I always start with the drums at the top, then bass guitar, then guitars, then keys and, you know, programming, and then vocals, and then I have all my effects returns down the bottom and then a mastering chain on the very end. So it just goes from top to bottom like that. So I can't, I'll always arrange my sessions in that. It gets a little bit haphazard while I'm recording a session where you're just sort of flying stuff around and lining things up and doing editing and moving tracks around. But in, in terms of when it comes to a, a final mix preparation sort of stage, I'll, yeah, I'll line everything up in that system um, that I'm familiar with. I see. Um, I, we definitely preach the idea of getting your workflow down to a science and 
Wow, really, it's not going to make your mix, but it can certainly destroy it if uh, if your workflow is not not on on point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's like that that system. I haven't changed that in fifteen years. I think I've, every session I I get sent files to mix from bands. That the first thing I do is line the tracks in that order just so I know I can zip around you know to exactly where things know exactly where things will land I've always mm-hmm. always find my buses are all I cascade my buses so I've got you know I'll have drums and then the drum buses will be underneath it and then the bass and the bass buses will be straight underneath it I know some guys have all their buses right down the bottom of the session but I think for editing purposes I find you know when you're doing an automation and that sort of stuff it's great to visualize the where all the waves and stuff are changing that makes sense to me but yeah definitely organization in sessions is super important um lifesaver or ender mm. <laughs> the way that i look at it with mixing so um eric burt is wondering hey forrester i understand that on themata and sound awake there's no vocal tuning whatsoever can you explain what went into tracking Ian Kenny's vocals for those albums? Is he just that amazing? Or was there a lot of comping or takes, et cetera, to get those stellar performances or all the above? Yeah, like it's, it just, he, he's an amazing singer. He really is one of the best singers that I've worked with. And in terms of getting those performances out of him, um, he does a lot of the recording with Drew, the guitarist. I know that on, on Thermata we did about two weeks of vocals and then I had to come back. They were, they were in, in Perth in Western Australia. I had to come back to Eastern Australia and they probably continued on recording for a, a, another month or so. I can't remember exactly how long it was, but they would just continue to do more takes and add more BVs and that sort of stuff. But in terms of doing takes, yeah, like it, it's, you know, they, you'll, you'll get up there. Like you know, we're talking like, a lot of takes just to get the right performance and you kind of got to when you're in there in this in that environment you kind of got to judge that balance between how many takes am I doing is it getting tedious are you losing the vibe or are you improving on the performance and getting what you want so it's this fine balance of of how much you push the artist to to do take after take after take but I know that I come from the, the, what I've learned through my um, experience is that yeah you, you it's pretty rare that you come across a singer who's going to get it in the first three takes you know I'll definitely start with a singer expecting them to do probably 10 takes of vocals straight up you know and 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 expect them to be to do a, you know to do 15 half an hour of warm-ups before we even press record because that's what a professional singer or you know an experienced singer should really be doing um, mm-hmm. to get their voice in top condition but yeah like he he's just a he, he is one of those super professional singers you know he's got a warm-up routine he knows how to treat his voice you know at shows he if he's on tour he won't drink you know he won't smoke he won't do any of those things on tour he looks up he goes home early before the rest of the band goes to the hotel that sort of thing so yeah in in the studio it's just he'll just work hard to get the result you know he'll do 50 takes if it needs to be that to get what we're after so in terms of the tuning thing it's just he he's one of those guys that yeah he's just got enough control that we just didn't need to go down that path and and use tuning on his vocals he just he's just that good by the way uh, john brown from monuments told me to say hi to you 
Uh, he just texted me. Okay, that's John. <laughs> yeah, he's a great guy. Yeah. So, um, Max Kessler was wondering, when working on rhythm-based bands like Sky Harbor and Carnival, how do you make it sound incredibly heavy, yet still articulate so that everything finds its place in the mix? And also, how do you get a dense-sounding mix like that without overloading your master bus? Yeah. Look, I, I think... The, the the funny thing is, is how do you it, do it all in three in three minutes? <laughs> the thing is, three sentences. <laughs> I struggle just like everyone else. Like I'm no different to anyone else out there, battling with bottom end and how to make it work. And it, it really is just. I mean, obviously using my ears and a lot of trial and error. Um, you know, like I, I I play around like play around with plugins and different. Um, bass amp simulators on the DI like if a band sends me a DI and you know a mic or a DI and two mics I'll still add three amp sims of my own on the bass because I find amp sims on bass you know you, you there's they sound great and you can you can really craft the the bass tone on your own with what what else is going on in the mix so that's probably one of the key things that I do to get bass working in a mix is will always explore my own choices of sounds on top of what the band's actually given me. So um, I know from like for Sky Harbor, for example, they gave me, I think, probably like three or four different tones to work with and then I probably added like another three as well. And it sounds silly, like sounds like this um, crazy just clash of just different tones going on, but they're all, they're all carefully selected and they all combine in a certain way that works together and satisfies the mix so um but you know in terms of overloading the master bus obviously bottom end is a struggle especially if you you know if you're sort of looking at limiting and those sort of things in terms of getting decent volume out of your master bus bottom ends something you're working against um because it takes up so much energy um, but yeah, it's just it's it's honestly just a trial and error thing. I, I do sort of spend a lot of time crafting that, um, you know, with different plugins. And I mean, I've got my regular choices, but every every mix is unique. So there's not sort of one hard and fast answer as to how to make that work. You know, like I'll I'll spend you know days on some songs just trying to get that balance right between. You know the bass and the drums and the bottom end, working with the mastering. The mastering is something that I'll probably do start working on about three quarters of the way through a mix. Once I sort of got the balance of all the instruments, I'll start adding a few extra mastering plugins to sort of shape it a little bit more. But uh, I'll definitely try and get all that balance and everything done. That's probably one of the first things that I start working on when I'm working on a mix, getting the the drums and the bass working together. I don't, I don't, I don't think I really answered that. It's just, it's just well, one of the, you know. I mean, it's one of those questions like, how do you cook a meal or something? Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, there's, it's like, what, do you have six months for an answer? Yeah, yeah. It's 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 just one of those things that it's just trial and error. Like it really is. You know, like I ex- I experiment as much as the next guy. You know, like it's not like I've got this process down where I'm just, you know, bang five minutes. I've got a bass and a drum sound that's kicking ass. It's it's. I mean, it's, and it's highly. It, it's 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 up to the recording as well. Like it, there's only so much you can do in a mix, um, in terms of 
doing, you know, getting a great bass sound. Like a lot of it's got to do with the player and how the actual parts, like if it's poorly performed and it's not, you know, the drums and the bass aren't glued together in terms of the actual performance, that's, you know, you can't do anything about that unless you, you know, got the okay to go in and edit things and no one wants to be doing that one that when they're supposed to be focused on mixing. So, yeah, that's, you know, the, all those things sort of add up. But um, we, luckily with those sort of bands, you know, with Sky Harbour and Carnival, the bass players are amazing and the drummers are phenomenal. So that sort of thing's already pre, you know, pre, pre-worked out in, in terms of in the recording stage. So uh, the mixing usually comes pretty pretty easy with that sort of thing i know that when we were mixing the sound awake stuff you know having the i had john in the room with me and so and 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 steve as well so it was always something we'd probably work on that together until everyone's satisfied and um happy with the sounds that were going on but the sky harbor stuff i was doing obviously on my own because they're overseas and um, but it was just so well recorded and they, they're just such great players that putting that sort of drum and bass performance together and making it sound good wasn't super difficult because they were just great players. You just made me think of something. I've uh, recently realised that I uh, judge my friends' mixes differently than I used to. But I mean, like, my friends that are really, really great mixers if I typically love their work and then they have a string of one or two records that for some reason just don't sound like they were on their game or something or like just not that great. My initial, now my initial uh, thought is I bet the tracking sucked. Yeah. I bet you they got handed something they couldn't mix their way out of. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the truth. It's like, it's what when you listen to a recording, you know, and you start going down that path of listening to the production and picking at things, it's like this, is it the mastering? Is it the mixing? Was it the microphones that they used? You know, there's so many variables that go into um, you know, how something sounds. So it's just it's just super difficult to articulate at what point, you know, things affect... At what point you, things went sour. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's like, I, I still get stuff that I listen to and go, oh, like, this is... Like, you, you probably know from your own experience, like, you get stuff that you sent to mix and it's just like 10 minutes later, you know, 10 minutes after opening the session, you're like, man, this mix is smoking. It sounds excellent. You know, and then you get mm-hmm. mixes that you spend three days working on. You're like, oh, I just cannot get this to sound good. And it just, it's not you know any lack of your skill or, or equipment or anything like that it's just what's actually being recorded dictates you know how fast that stuff moves or how, you know how hard you have to work so and it's it's even impossible you know if, it, if it's not clearly something that's like oh that's out of time or you know that's just distorting or whatever it might be it's actually really difficult to articulate what it is that's not working about it, like why you don't like that bass sound, or why why do the drums just you know, you know why they're not working properly with the the rest of the music? It's just it's a tricky one, you know. There's so many variables. Well, sometimes I mean, I, I'm sure you know, it's sometimes it's down to there's always going to be a song on every record that sounds the best, and always one that sounds the worst. Hmm. No matter how you feel about them, I feel like there's always that one song that just kind of mixes itself yeah and then the one that's just 
no matter what you do, it's just going to give you problems. Yeah. And some records come in and they are that song times 10. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, it's so so true. Like, it's definitely, there's definitely some songs that, and that, and you know, that, that speaks to me is that it's the music, you know, like it's, there's, there's, you might have had exactly the same setup for each of these different songs and this one sounds better than the rest why is that it's because the music's better you know i think it's it's just the way that the the rhythms and the way that the frequencies from the the, because of the choice the pitch you know the notes that have been chosen it just works glues together a little bit better and that i think heads into that realm of you know it's just a better song um, which mm-hmm. you know, highlights another thing that we probably haven't touched on, which is just the, the songwriting and how important you know that is. That all this all this technical stuff that we you know, we've, we've been speaking about is sort of superficial, and it actually just comes back to the song being a great song and being well written. Well, you know, I feel like if you want a great mix. In some ways, you you need to start with a great song, and there's exceptions, and I feel like those exceptions are usually pulled off by the very top mixers in the world. So some people may disagree with me and be like, but there's great-sounding bad songs out there all over the place, and it's like, yeah, but look who mixed them. It's usually the very, very best mixers in the world are what's required to make a bad song sound good. Like, you need to have, like, the equivalent of a Navy SEAL mixer to salvage a bad song, whereas history has plenty of great songs that don't sound that great technically, but stand the test of decades because the songs themselves are so great. And I'm sure you've had that feeling when mixing, when it's a really great song that, like we were saying earlier, just kind of mixes itself or just feels so right it just kind of takes on a life of its own yeah absolutely i mean it's one of the things that kind of inspires me as well you know i feel like this decade this last decade we've kind of the music industry or you know the, the music production in general has touched on a new level of quality you know like I, I listen to the quality of mixes and music that's been created in this day and age and how better it sounds how much better it sounds than it's crazy the 90s and the 80s and the 70s once you know going back and but at the same time the songs from those era from those eras still sound great you know, like this, you can listen to these shitty recordings in the '80s, but who cares? Because the songs are great. You know, it's just one of those things that I, um, yeah, it just in, in, inspires me to think that even though we're in this heyday of music production and just being able to, you know, notch EQ every harsh frequency out and, you know, have the perfect drum sound and samples and all this sort of stuff, it's kind of irrelevant, you know, like it's it just comes back to if you just have a good song and you got a shitty recording of it, it's still a good song. Yeah, I mean, it will still speak to people. And I guess that's a perfect lead-in for this question by Sam Mickey, which is, how involved did you get with the Carnival guys when writing? And at this point, I assume there's a level of comfort that exists that might not with your other clients. Um, uh, yeah, we definitely got a special. Rela- I've got a special relationship with those guys. In terms of the writing, I, I not I didn't really get involved with the songwriting with with those guys. I mean, I assisted them in finishing 
a bunch of the songs on um, on both on Sound Awake and um, Thamada. But I mean, those those guys were in the studio jamming those a lot of those songs out. I, I think from memory, Sound Awake they had com- you know, pretty much completely written six songs. I think before we went into the studio, so the other songs just needed to be sort of pieced together a little bit um, when we went into the the studio or the pre-production phase or whatever it was. And, yeah, we just had a bunch of Pro Tools sessions and we just sort of all, as a group, sort of put structures together of the of the songs and found parts and put them in that sort of thing. But in terms of writing, like, I wouldn't really classify what I was doing as a writer with those guys. But definitely getting heavy on the you know, the creative production and, I mean, coming back to that concept of a facilitating, you know, facilitating all their ideas because they're such a creative bunch of guys that when they go, oh, I've got this idea, it's like, okay, well, let's see where that goes and how do we make that work? How do we make that happen? And I think I, I can't remember my role as as, as, as including all of that was also feeling like I had to stop a lot of the sabotage that might have been going on, you know, in terms of them second guessing great parts, you know, like they pop out, mm-hmm. pop out this idea in the moment and go, oh, what about this? And it would be like, yeah, that's, that sounds really amazing. They'd be like, oh, no, nah, she don't really know if I like that. Like, no, it sounds fantastic. Like, let's let's do it. Let's get that down. So, you know, there would you ever have to do you ever have to tell a musician that he's being a maniac by wanting to cut something that's incredible? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, 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 I feel like one of the fundamental roles of a producer is being able to identify parts and, and ideas that are great, you know, that are, that are things that are classic, that are going to, um, you know, really enhance a song or, you know, speak to people on, on a, on a, on a level that's important for the song. So that's, yeah, that's definitely a role that, um, I have with Carnival, I feel is just, great ideas you know they've got so many of them is helping them helping them filter what's good and yeah what 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 isn't most of it's good <laughs> I, li- I like that you're touching on that because lots of times production gets talked about from the i don't know how to say this not from it's not negative to cut what's bad but it gets talked a lot about how one of your main jobs is to get rid of the bad takes get rid of what's bad get rid of what's terrible but at the same time maybe it doesn't get highlighted as much that the flip side of that coin is spotting what's timeless yeah yeah and then that, that ties back into what i was talking about earlier about finding the thing with each band that's unique you know finding finding that that thing that makes that band sound like that band and that that's sort of the same thing you know finding those parts that are going to be classic and going to be remembered by by listeners to, to, to associate that sound or that part with that band. So here's a question from Ewan Edgar. He says, I've heard somewhere that Forrester was very unhappy with the mix for Sound Awake when he turned the mix in, and I'd like to know what he didn't like about it, because for so many people, that album's production is incredible. Well, So first of all, is that true? It is true, yep. Yeah, I did uh, probably said that to a few people, but the reason being is because you've got your head so inside 
a record um, and a mix. And that, that record was epic to mix. Like, you know, think of the, some of the song lengths uh, on that record. Some of them are really long songs. They took, you know, we're, so we're mixing in, a, in an expensive studio on an analog console and an SSL console. Um, the mixes had to be signed off on as we did them. There was no recall. Um, so the band was in the in the room with me. The band was in the in the next studio, adding parts as we do each song. They would have guitars and sounds like stress. Oh, it, it was yeah, it was definitely stressful. And you know, long long days like getting in at nine o'clock in the morning and going home at two a.m. in the morning, that sort of thing. So um, it took three weeks, I think, to mix. So we're in the studio for three weeks, and yeah, I just. It wasn't my familiar environment to be mixing in. It wasn't my studio. Um, so it was a... While I had done mixes before in that same room and I did enjoy mixing in that room, there was still that little bit of like, not really super sure how this is 100% sounding. I mean, it's, they sounded like good mixes in the room, but the translation elsewhere was always a little bit of a unknown you know we'd take it out into a car and kind of go yeah and that sounds sounds kind of right i think it wasn't until the mastering uh happened that i started to realize what the mix is how, how you know good it was going to sound i think um having tom coin do the mastering on it and what he brought to it was just like oh that made a much clearer picture for me what the end result was going to be and how good it was but definitely in the days well, the day after I'd, we'd finished the mixes, I was stressing about silly little things about, like, tom fills not cutting through and, you know, is, mm-hmm. is there enough bottom end in that bass part? Or, you know, it's just stuff like, you know, just so irrelevant right now to the overall, you know, just those hyper details that um, no one else is going to hear. That was, so, that was so foremost in my mind after you know, delving so deep into those mixes that I was just frustrated and, um, yeah, and, there's, and, and it's complex music. You know, there's the long songs with heaps of layering, you know, with progressive arrangements. It was just like there's so much going on, so much to, to be on top of that I just felt like I hadn't been on top of all of it. And that really got to me. And when, when we'd finished it, I was just like, oh, really? But then, yeah. That, <laughs> could, have, yeah. could have spent two more years on yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, what's, when, when is a record finished, you know? So it's not yeah. when they pull it away from you. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So yeah, so it was definitely something you're spot on. It was definitely something I wasn't happy with when I walked out of there. I wasn't. I, I didn't hate it. I knew. I knew I hadn't blown it up. You know, I hadn't hadn't ruined it. But I just was like, is it as good as it can be? I wasn't sure. And uh, yeah, it wasn't until the mastering happened. I was like, yeah, this is pretty good. <laughs> when you got the mastering and not. And just be honest, did you realize, not saying that you haven't been honest, but uh, did you realize that you were working on what some people would consider a, a pinnacle-type record? Like, did you, you ju- or did you just think, oh, okay, it sounds pretty good? Yeah. No, all, all I knew was oh, I really enjoyed it. I mean, that's that's one of the, my, the, the whole things of me working with the Carnival is that they're always a band that I loved. I love their music as a fan. You know, I've always been a fan of the band. So working on their music was a pleasure. And 
even from the demo stage of those songs, I was like, yeah, these songs are really good. You know, this is, this is going to be a good record, but didn't had no concept of what it, the potential it had. Um, even when it would finish the mixes, you know, yeah, just I mean, it, it, it's all, also again like being a band like like Carnival, like quite proggy, and you know, there, there weren't any obvious singles or anything like that. It's so it's a unknown prospect here in Australia how that's gonna be received, you know, like it's such a it's a sort of fringe genre and that sort of thing that um, you never know how how those things are gonna get it. Um, you know, get exposed and get out into the into the industry and how they're received. I think Australia, to me, I could be completely wrong about this, but is kind of known for having some very successful experimental rock acts. Like, uh, I know that Silverchair didn't start weird, but they certainly became very interesting. Yeah as as their career went on and uh it's all here people forgot about them but uh, didn't they remain pretty huge till the end yeah yeah i mean they are still one of australia's favorite rock bands for sure i mean they're kind of not really functioning anymore but yeah they they definitely got experimental in their later records and their, their sound evolved which is i think quite interesting quite cool you know yeah i mean australia's got solid definitely got some really good bands i mean i think the even more so these days where i feel like the, the it's a bit more global now and, and bands have a, a the ability to get overseas and have that exposure where perhaps it was a bit more um insulated you know, a decade ago before the internet really opened it up that's um yeah that the the playing field is is a lot more open now for australian bands to to get out there and you know compete and not 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 that's a competition that's not the right word but you know to get out there amongst um other international artists and you know write good songs so i thought it was interesting that uh for just on the uh silver chair idea that we heard about them here when radio and mtv was all you had but then as the internet happened and they actually got better like way better it's almost like pe- the inverse happened. Less and less people knew about them. But here's a question from Yatin Srivastava, which is, how did you manage to get such a punchy yet dynamic sound for Temara, considering videos and clips show that the gear used was not particularly expensive or quote-unquote special? I feel like that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is, if you know what you're doing, you can get great sounds. Yeah, I, I mean that that record was kind of the opposite, not opposite, but just a different sort of spectrum to the Sound Awake one. Where the Sound Awake was lots of live vibes and whole takes and very minimal editing, whereas the Marta was heavily edited, heavily processed, and very. I think it's just yeah it's just yeah just just it was just a record that was everything was looked over with a fine tooth comb and a magnifying glass to make sure everything worked together so I mean I think in terms of I'm not sure what he means by what they mean by the equipment being average, I'm not average. Sure. I mean I think I think maybe he just means that I really don't know what he means I mean but we, I we think used all just, the same yeah we used a 
Pro Tools rig with good quality microphones and 5150s and JCM 800s yeah. and yeah, all the. I mean, it was done in a gorilla fashion. Like we for Thermata, we recorded in five different locations to record. We did the drums in a in a studio. We did pre production in um, in a house um, in my parents' house. We did the bass at the John's at John's parents' house and, you know, put the bass cabs in there in one of the cellars uh, and recorded, you know, they had the recording part up in his bedroom and we did the vocals down in the house, you know, down on the coast um, just with an M-Box, with an M-Box 1 and a Rode Classic microphone. We did the guitars in a in a holiday house out in the middle of nowhere down in a town called Walpole, which is on the south coast of Western Australia. It's about six hours drive from Perth. So we had to lug everything down in a, in a big uh, van and set it all up. And yeah, we were basically isolated from no, no phone reception, no television, no internet. Uh, we did that for about four weeks recording guitars, but it was all top-notch gear, but just... Um, it wasn't all in a, in a classy studio or anything like that. It was all, mm-hmm. yeah, kind of uh, just done in different 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 locations. But um, and it was, again, it was mixed in in Melbourne and, and on a, an SSL console as well. So yeah, but I think that one was just it was just that was a much more manufactured record um, in terms of the playing and the parts and the editing as opposed to Sound Awake being a much more organic record. Let's see. Here's what a good one from David Medeiros, which is. I'd like to know about guitar layering and panning, please, especially with Sound Awake, since the two guitarists aren't often playing in unison. How do you fill out the mix so that it doesn't seem lopsided? That's just a feel thing. I think when you're sort of playing with two parts that are not playing the same thing, but you're still sort of pushing them out to the side so that um, there's space for the things down the centre, like the bass and the vocals. But yeah, it's just a... It's just a balancing. I mean, if they've got different energies, obviously you're just going to ride the volume so that they sound like they're balanced on either side. Maybe a little bit of EQing and in, in the, the choices that we're making when we're actually tracking the guitars so that they're complementing each other. But I know for a lot of the heavy sounds in that record, we particularly went with one side being like a 5150 like which is like the traditional carnival sound yeah. with their particular tuning and his and Drew's PRS guitar through 5150 it's very distinctly his sound and then we purposely went with like I think uh, it was it might have been a JMP like an old school Marshall plexi through a Marshall cab on the other side just for a point of difference as opposed to Thermata where it was Double tracked with a JCM 800 and 5150, both left and right for all the heavy guitars. So, uh, Sound Awake, we did the opposite and um, tried to actively go for two different textures, one on each side. But yeah, in terms of balancing and getting all that right, it was just yeah, it's just one of those things of just getting you know getting the the different parts to feel right in the mixing stage, just just purely through volume and EQ. There wasn't any kind of special technique or anything to get that to work i mean one of the early discussions on that record was that we wanted the bass to take a upfront position in the in the music and that was i don't remember the conversation that was heavily influenced by the band actually recording their own demos and having a room mic and wanting that a room bass sound on some of the songs and 
that you know we kind of achieved that on a couple of them it feels like there's a bit of bit of depth to the bass because we actually had room mics going on which is that that goliath song where we did the live takes between the bass and the drums so that that kind of made it i think with those mixes and sound awake finding the balance for the guitars was easy because you had this strong center backbone with the bass guitar always existing down the middle so it was just sort of having this wide ambient sort of going on and it was it wasn't like I was trying to push the guitars out to the forefront and have them yeah taking up lots of space they were always kind of second not secondary but they're always supporting the bass as opposed to the bass supporting the guitars the so a lot of it sounds like it comes just from the arrangements being worked to support a mix that that's structured that way yeah so yeah. down to the backbone of the music. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, yeah, the parts were written and the concept of the bass being somewhat of the lead instrument or a lead instrument um, more so than traditionally in maybe that sort of style of music, that the bass was definitely going to be a driving force and that, that was something that we'd spoken about and um, had I definitely had the idea of that from the, from the get-go. Um, I mean, John, and John's parts are so conducive to, you know, taking the lead. He's almost like a lead guitarist in a way, in the way he plays a lot of his parts. So it was kind of easy to have that out the out the front and work the guitars in around, you know, around that part. So definitely the arrangements facilitated that for sure. A final question. This one's from Douglas Skeen, which is, what's typical in your vocal chain and do you process backings different to leads? Um, yes, I do. What's typical in my... So typical vocal chain for me, if I'm not recording it, if I'm recording it, I'll probably go through a, a compressor like an LA-2A or 1176, depending on what I've got my hands on. And it's only a little bit um, of compression. You will usually rely on um, a lot of compression in the mixing stage. And I'll always filter the vocal first uh, with an EQ, taking out any kind of bottom end rumble, that sort of thing. And then I'll hit it with probably two compressors, just doing slightly different things. So one will be a fast compressor and another one will be a slow compressor. Sometimes I'll use a limiter instead of the fast compressor. Depends on the vocalist. Um, And then usually a de-esser, then some EQ saturation i play with sometimes it's after all that or before the compressors as well but um again it depends on the part whether it even needs saturation or not but one of the things i've really gotten into these days which i think is kind of something that i think everyone's kind of doing with this new improved production in this in this decade is is notch filtering doing a lot of notch filtering i'll do a lot of automation on vocals so you know especially e sound e valves mm-hmm. um you know going through and notching out that nasty 2.7 or 3.3 k frequency when vocals hit certain sounds certain um yes yeah, so certain vowels and and mouth shapes cause shrill or piercing frequencies that I'll go through and fine-tune. You know, some song, I there was a band last year that the vocalist literally had probably 10 automating notch filters, you know, flicking in and out through every word. It's just 
insane. That's what you had to do. That's what I had to do to make it sound good. I mean, yeah. you, you kind of, it's one of those things that it's, you can do this broad EQ shapes on on a vocal to get it sound generally good but in reality like it's such a moving target that this the sound of you know a vocal that you've got to you realize that when you do all these little automation moves and notch out all these little frequencies like it's so subtle but it's so noticeable you know in the final mix that just it's just a, a pleasant thing to listen to as opposed to every now and again you're kind of wincing at the speakers and going oh what was that yeah and you realize it's a vocal um, just having these crazy shrill frequencies sticking out. Funny, it's like we've come full circle. We started highly technical, talked about feel and songwriting and arrangement, and have come back to highly technical. Mm. And I think it, it goes to show that how well you blend both. Well, it's a, it's a holistic sort of thing, you know? Like, I, you just, you've just got to have a touch on, on everything at every stage. I mean, that, that was you know a, a great insight to watching nolly work and his kind of approach um learning off him was was really cool because it's one thing i don't actually get to do too often these days is actually learn from other guys and i sort of jump at the opportunity to, to get inside a studio and see how another guy tackles um you know doing a recording and that and so and he he's definitely i think he's on the same wavelength as as i am in terms of just you need to be hands-on in in every process and every way you've got to understand every musician every instrument every technical aspect of the studio but and then every creative aspect of the studio as well like it's a it's a huge list of things that you need to be aware of and need to be yeah on top of your game in the studio to get the best result um, and you know you can often you miss these things and that's like when you in the final stages of mix you're going oh you know like that's the snare tuning thing you know can take, taking care of the snare tuning while you're actually recording it rather than getting to the mix and going oh damn my third chorus the snare is just completely detuned you know compared to the rest of the song just all those little things it's just like a they all add up to getting the best out of a recording and just knowing what all those little things are and being aware of them is is kind of is kind of what I try to do and I have noticed other guys doing it as well so yeah it's it's a big task but you've kind of got to take it on board you do a phenomenal job of it and hey we love Nolly too by the way uh we had him on nail the mix and it was downright enlightening yeah I think actually that was probably the first podcast I listened to which is funny yeah. yeah he's got a lot of got a lot of wisdom yeah he's 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 a great guy well Forrester thank you so much for coming on and sharing so much of your wisdom with us and just taking the time no thanks very much for having me and listening to me rattle on I appreciate it the unstoppable recording machine podcast is brought to you by stam audio Stam Audio creates zero compromise recording gear that is light on the wallet. Only the best components are used, and each one goes through a rigorous testing process with one thing in mind, getting the best sound possible. Go to stamaudio.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy slash podcast and subscribe today.